PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the Craigcast from Physical Therapy. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Rebecca Craig, offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. Here is Rebecca Craig. Hello, this is Becky Craig, and I am delighted to welcome you to the November issue of PTJ. This is a spectacular issue filled with wonderful information. The issue begins with the podcast of the Rothstein Roundtable, and the topic of that podcast is related to the human movement system. As many of you may know, in 2013, the American Physical Therapy Association's House of Delegates adopted a new vision statement, basically saying that our vision is to transform society by optimizing movement to improve the human experience. And one of the guiding principles associated with that vision is that physical therapy, the profession, will define and promote the movement system as a foundation. And if you haven't heard about the human movement system, I really do encourage you to go back to the July issue of 2014. There's a perspective written by Shirley Sarman that really talks about what the human movement system is or could be and how relevant it is to our profession. So, Dr. Stephen Hunter, Barbara Norton, Chris Powers, and Lisa Saladin participated in a panel discussion that was moderated by Tony Delito. And the purpose of this roundtable was to ask whether we're ready to adopt the human movement system if we're putting all of our eggs in one basket, if we're putting too much attention to this human movement system, it's a wonderful, wonderful discussion. So please listen to it. And now I'll move on to the research and perspective articles that we find in the actual journal. The first article is entitled Effectiveness of Soft Tissue Massage for Nonspecific Shoulder Pain. This is a randomized control trial led by Paul Van Den Dolder and colleagues from Illawarra, Shoalhaven Local Health District in Wollongong, New South Wales, and physiotherapy at the University of Sydney in Sydney, both from Australia. This article is about shoulder pain, and I'm going to tell you, based on their introduction, that shoulder pain is defined as um, pain between the anterior and posterior shoulder complex excluding the spine, and excluding the central anterior thoracic region. The prevalence of shoulder pain is between 7 and 26% of adults. And in this study, what we're talking about is pain that lasts more than one year. That's very common. And what's more important is that about half of these persons are referred to physical therapy. The introduction, again, provides a rationale for the current study, saying that a survey was conducted in Australia looking at physiotherapists who treated shoulder pain, and 100% of them used exercise and 66% used soft tissue massage. While in the Netherlands, 92% of the PTs used soft tissue massage for rotator cuff injuries, 97% used exercise, and... 85% use both exercise and soft tissue massage. 
to date, there's not an RCT that really looks at, I'm going to say, the effectiveness of soft tissue massage compared to exercise or combined together. The authors provide a lovely rationale for providing soft tissue massage. There are several hypotheses about why soft tissue massage may be useful in the presence of chronic shoulder pain. I encourage you to look at the introduction because I was impressed with the rationale that they were offering for the soft tissue massage. So the purpose of the study then was to compare soft tissue massage and exercise to exercise alone in persons who had chronic shoulder pain that was nonspecific. The intervention was provided over a four-week period. There were seven sessions during those four weeks. There were 80 subjects recruited into this trial, and the average age was 63 years of age. Looking at their outcome measures, they used a measure of pain, the visual analog scale. For disability, they used the shoulder pain and disability index. And they also looked at range of motion, looking at range of motion in flexion, abduction, and internal rotation of the shoulder. In internal rotation, many of you know, what they would do is basically use a tape measure to see how far the tip of the fingers could extend upward on the back. Finally, they asked the subjects to provide a global rating of their pain improvement, percent improvement. There were two physical therapists with more than 10 years of experience that provided the interventions. So I think that kind of lays it out. The study really does a lovely job describing the details. And I think I'm not going to go into much more related to the intervention except to say that the exercises were tailored to the specific patient's need. And the exercise include range of motion, strength, and motor control. So it was a, I'm going to say, multi-component exercise program. And the massage lasted for 10 to 15 minutes, and the technique was one that was described by Vanderdoller and Roberts in another paper. So the results of this study, if we look at the soft tissue massage and exercise group measures at baseline one week after intervention was complete, and then three months later, what we see is that there was an improvement in the variables except for internal rotation. Looking at the exercise group only, there was an increase in all the variables except for shoulder flexion. However, when we look between groups, so the between group differences, so what I'm saying is that each group demonstrated improvement over the four-week time, and there was sustained improvement. But if we look between groups, the pain decrease was more in the exercise group. And it was 14.7 millimeters as a mean. That's a, that's a big difference with no difference in others. So I think what the authors are proposing as a conclusion is that there's really not strong evidence from this study that soft tissue massage added additional benefit. And in our current healthcare climate, it, we also have to consider cost. So additional therapist time with no apparent extra benefit. I think the authors then state that perhaps the measures that they selected were not all inclusive and massage may have had an effect on another outcome measure. This is only a single RCT involving 80 patients, but that's the conclusion of the study. I think it was extremely well done and very thoughtful. Thank you.
The next paper is entitled Cognitive Functional Therapy for Disabling Nonspecific Chronic Low Back Pain. This is a multiple case cohort study done by Kieran O'Sullivan and colleagues that come from clinical therapies and design and manufacturing technology departments at the University of Limerick in Limerick, Ireland, Rehabilitation Sciences at the University of Leuven, Belgium, and the School of Physiotherapy and Exercise Science at Curtin University in Perth, Australia. The purpose of this study was to examine the effectiveness of cognitive functional therapy for persons with disabling nonspecific low back pain. And these persons were waiting for an appointment with a medical specialist. All right, so they were basically on a wait list and were approached to see if they would participate in this study. Now, this is a case cohort study, meaning that there's not a control group. The authors looked sort of at baseline performance, provided an intervention, and then looked at follow-up to see whether there was a sustained difference. All right, so this is the beginning. This could then turn into a randomized control trial, for example. The measures that the authors used were for pain, the numeric rating scale, For functional disability, they used the Oswestry Disability Index, and they also did a brief pain inventory plus other measures. I'm going to step back for a little bit and say that we all know that nonspecific chronic low back pain continues to plague all of us, the therapists who've tried to work with the patients, physicians, so it's still a conundrum or a challenge for us all. And there's always attempts to explore other methods of treating. And certainly in recent years in our journal, we've talked a lot about the psychosocial aspects of chronic low back pain and the fact that maybe we should be focusing on a cognitive intervention as well. Because there's certainly evidence that psychosocial factors such as depression, anxiety, fear, compound the chronic low back pain. So this was a very thoughtful study that looked at a small sample of 14 females and two males with a mean age of 44 years. The intervention involved cognitive training, functional movement treatment, functional integration, and physical activity and lifestyle training. Again, I really encourage you to look at the study because it nicely describes the intervention so that you could repeat it if necessary. Although it was a small sample, there was a significant decrease in the Oswestry disability inventory. And by significant, I mean it was 22 points lower immediately after and 23 points lower after three and six months and 24 points lower after a year. 15 of the 24 subjects reported a reduction in functional disability at 12 months. There was also a decrease in pain reported at 12 months. So I think this is a wonderful beginning of a careful documentation to look at cognitive intervention in chronic low back pain. And it adds to our current literature, and now we need randomized control trials. Thank you very much. The next paper is entitled Predictive Value of General Movement Assessment for Cerebral Palsy in Routine Clinical Practice. The authors are Gunn, Kristen Oberg, and colleagues who come from Health and Care Sciences and Community Medicine Departments at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway, and Clinical Therapeutic Services at University Hospital in North Norway, both in 
Tromsø, Norway. What makes me so happy about this issue is as I began my life as editor-in-chief of physical therapy, I really felt that we had a deficit in pediatric research and that we didn't have sufficient number of qualitative studies in our journal. This issue addresses both of those topics extremely well, and this particular paper is an example. When we talk about preterm children, there's often a concern, especially those who have low birth weight, that these preterm children have an increased risk of cerebral palsy. The problem is that there's not a certain way to say at the time of birth that the child does or will have cerebral palsy. And so without a diagnosis, it's difficult for physical and occupational therapy to begin intervention. So we have to kind of wait until the child's nervous system matures and exhibits impairments that allow then allow the therapist to intervene. So that's always been a frustration in being able to early identify and provide early intervention. So these authors were interested in trying to identify a behavior that would predict cerebral palsy later, and they wanted to try and define it at specific periods of time. So there's something called fidgety movements, okay, FMs, and it turned out that fidgety movements were best observed at about three months. I'm going to try to read you a definition of fidgety movement so that you have a visual image. Their ongoing stream of circular movements described as small amplitude, moderate speed, and variable accelerations of the neck, trunk, and limbs in all directions. They can be observed when the child is awake, alert, and lying in a supine position. So that's kind of, you have a sense of what the fidgety movements are. They're present from six to nine weeks until six to 20 weeks after birth. And so basically fidgety movements can be characterized as present or absent as sort of the most extreme. So not having fidgety movements is considered abnormal. And then there's a range in between. What the authors did was they did a general movement assessment in 87 high-risk infants at three months after term age. And then the infants were followed and assessed for cerebral palsy at two years. What they found was, again, I think remarkable, the likelihood ratio of predicting who had cerebral palsy was 8.7, which is amazing. And the risk of motor problems by the age of two years increased linearly with the extent of pathology and was 10 times higher when fidgety movements were absent at three months. So this is really powerful. So again, the sample's small and it was done at one site, so there are lots of additional questions. But if you're working in a neonatal intensive care unit, I would really consider reading this paper carefully, seeing if you can begin to collect some information for yourself. The next paper is also a paper associated with pediatrics, and the title of this paper is Activities of Daily Living in Children with Developmental Coordination Disorder, Performance, Learning, and Participation. The authors are Berdeen van der Lind and colleagues, all from the Netherlands three different units at the University of Groningen. 
the Institute of Sports Studies at Hanze University of Applied Sciences and the Department of Surgery at Hospital Twente in El Melo, all in the Netherlands. Again, this is new for me, but there's a condition or a disorder called DCD, Developmental Coordination Disorder. This disorder is associated with impairments in coordination of voluntary movements, timing, force control, and motor learning. The impairments affect all kinds of motor activities, including activities of daily liver. So children with DCD have difficulties, as you would expect, in listening to the impairments, doing motor-based ADL activities, and compared with their peers, the thought is they have less activity. However, it hasn't been carefully described. The authors were interested in comparing to peers activities of daily living. There were 25 children with DCD in the age range of 5 to 8 years, and a group of peers with typical development were also 25, so they were matched controls. The parents completed a form called the DCD Daily Q, and the differences on this assessment tool were compared between the two groups. As one would expect, children with DCD showed poor performance of activities of daily living. In addition, they had less frequent participation in some activities of daily living. And because of that, they didn't engage in activities of daily living. So basically, it was sort of a vicious cycle but poor performance of activities of daily living was a predictor of less frequent participation compared with control groups. So I think this is, a, again, a nice study indicating the presence of impairments and suggests sort of the targeted goal for intervention in these children. The next paper is entitled Factors Influencing Physical Therapist's Use of Standardized Measures of Walking Capacity Post-Stroke Across the Care Continuum. The authors are Kira Patterson and colleagues. They come from the Rehabilitation Sciences Institute and the Departments of Physical Therapy and Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy at the University of Toronto in Ontario, Canada. This, I really thought, was an interesting study, and I hope you will enjoy reading it as much as I did. There are 15 million people worldwide who have a stroke every year, and half of those individuals lose the ability to walk independently. And as you all know, there's been an incredible effort to encourage clinicians to use outcome measures. And so the purpose of this study was to explore the methods that physical therapists use to evaluate walking post-stroke. So just really targeting on walking and what outcome measures were used and to also look at the reasons for selecting a particular outcome measure and discuss how the therapists use the results. This is a qualitative study that interviewed eight physical therapists in acute care, 11 in the rehabilitation setting, and nine in outpatient physical therapy services. I guess you can imagine what the outcome was, but I'm going to read through it. What was really interesting about the study that I was unaware of is that there is the Canadian best practice recommendation that therapists should use the FIM, the Functional Independent Measure, the Shadokes Master's Stroke Assessment, or the six-minute walk test to examine gait in persons post-stroke. 
So there's a list of recommended tools to be used. In interviewing the therapist, the preference in selecting a tool to some degree depended on the characteristics of the tool and the workplace and the type of patients that were being seen and the physical therapist's choice. All right, those are the four big factors. But most important was familiarity. So if the therapist was familiar with a particular tool, that's the tool that they chose to use. And I think this study sort of points to a real need for us who are teaching physical therapist students and other healthcare professional students, not only the importance of using outcome measures, but to make sure they're comfortable with the use of the outcome measure and how to use it and interpret it. Because I think the other point was that when discussing how the therapist used the gate data, they used it to report progress and they also used it to discuss progress in a team discussion. There's so many other ways that the data could be used as well. So again, I think this is a really excellent study that I think is translational implementation science in nature in viewing the beliefs of the physical therapist and their comfort with tools. It provides an opportunity for someone to go in and help them engage in using a tool more effectively and feel more comfortable with it. So thank you very much for this thoughtful paper. The next paper is entitled Direct and Indirect Benefits Reported by Users of Transcutaneous Electrical Nerve Stimulation for Chronic Musculoskeletal Pain. This is also a qualitative study. In this case, this is a qualitative exploration using patient interviews. The authors are Peter Gladwell and colleagues, and they come from the Pain Management Service at Southmead Hospital in Bristol, United Kingdom and at the University of West of England, and also in Bristol, England. I used to teach electrical stimulation, electrical modalities. I love transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation, and I'm always distressed when there's not um, good evidence to support its use. So I really was interested in this approach of finding out what the patient's perception was of the TENS, rather than just looking at outcomes and comparing between groups of two different types of intervention. There's certainly no consensus in the literature regarding the effect of TENS on the management of chronic low back pain. There are some studies that are very supportive and others that don't find any difference at all with the use of transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. So the purpose of this study was to explore the experience of the patient. There were nine patients that were interviewed. And again, this is a really thoughtful paper. I ask you to read it because what the patients reported was that the electrical stimulation decreased sensations associated with muscle tension, for example, decreased sensations associated with muscle spasm, had an effect on the patient's decision to decrease medications, increase function, and other kinds of outcome measures. So what I came away from the study thinking was maybe looking directly at a pain scale and saying, has TENS decreased your pain, isn't really getting to the issue of whether or not TENS or any intervention makes a difference. And again, I think it's becoming clearer and clearer to us is that if we really want to have an understanding of the effect of the intervention 
on mechanisms. We have to be broader in our investigation of where the differences occurred. If it's just to report whether or not the treatment was given and effective, a single outcome measure is fine. But if we're looking at underlying mechanisms, I think we may have to look with additional variable. Again, I thank the authors for this paper. It was extremely thoughtfully written. The next paper is entitled Diagnostic Value of Clinical Cervical Spine Tests in Patients with Cervicogenic Somatic Tinnitus. This is written by Sarah Michaels and her colleagues who come from the Department of Rehabilitation Sciences and Physiotherapy and the Department of Translational Neurosciences and the Multidisciplinary Core Center at the University of Antwerp in Antwerp, Belgium and the Department of Otorhinolaryngology at Antwerp University Hospital in Edehem, Belgium. I learn so much when I get to read the entire issue to the detail that I have to read it just to provide a very superficial overview. So thank you, authors, for doing such a great job. This one is about tinnitus or tinnitus, and I'm going to say tinnitus because I've heard it pronounced that way more often. This is a phantom sensation of sound that occurs in the absence of any overt acoustic stimulation. And if you know anybody who has this, you will understand, or if you have it yourself, you understand how irritating it is to have basically this ringing in your ears for no reason at all. It occurs in 10 to 15% of the adult population, and there are lots of reasons why a person can have it, but one type appears to be associated with the somatosensory system of the cervical spine. This type of tinnitus is named cervicogenic somatic tinnitus, or CST. And again, the introduction gives a lovely rationale explaining how this diagnosis was confirmed using animal models and the kinds of tests that can be done to examine it. The author's purpose was to see whether they could predict using examination tools. Basically, they're looking at good diagnostic tools. What they chose to examine persons with tinnitus was the neck Bournemouth questionnaire, which is called the NVQ, a positive manual rotation test, and an adapted spurling test, as well as the presence of sensitive trigger points. Okay, and again, those of you who are working in the cervical spine I'm sure these tests are familiar to you. I'm still learning about them. So what they wanted to do was find out whether any of these tests had a diagnostic value. Now, I think the reason that we're looking at the subpopulation, 10 to 15% of the population with tinnitus, and a subgroup with the cervicogenic somatic tinnitus is that there's some indication that forceful muscle contraction of the head, neck, and limb or pressure on myofascial trigger points has the ability to reduce tinnitus in some of these patients. So there is some preliminary evidence, at least in anecdotal evidence, that physical therapists may have a role in reducing tinnitus for some of these patients. They looked at 87 patients with chronic subjective non-pulsatile tinnitus. 37 of those 87 patients were diagnosed with CST. And what they found was that a positive manual rotation test and trigger points 
indicated a diagnosis with a likelihood ratio of 5. So this is incredibly strong. So again, if you are a clinician who is seeing patients with cervical spine issues and they report tinnitus, please read this article. I think you'll find it very helpful. The next paper is entitled, Clinical Ratings of Pain Sensitivity Correlate with Quantitative Measures in People with Chronic Neck Pain and Healthy Controls. This is a cross-sectional study done by Trudy Rebeck and her colleagues, all that are in Sydney, Australia, and they come from the Department of Physiotherapy at the University of Sydney, the Health Professions Department at Macquarie University, the Neuroscience Research Australia at the University of New South Wales, and the School of Physiotherapy and Exercise Science at Curtin University in Perth. This also I found very useful. So these two papers together, I think, um, the previous paper by Michaels and the paper by Rebick were great for a journal club discussion in a group who are treating patients with cervical spine problems. Basically, what these authors claim in their introduction is that neck pain ranks the fourth leading cause of years lived with disability. That's pretty amazing. So sounds like you get neck pain and it stays chronic and is ranked as fourth leading cause. And that's been the case for the last two decades. Moreover, the data from systematic reviews, whether one is treating or recovering from idiopathic neck pain or whiplash, indicate that recovery is poor and at least 50% have long-term pain and disability. This is a problem and it really does a nice job of discussing the prevalence. Certainly, there's also indication that a person that has a high initial self-reported pain level has a poorer outcome over time. So these authors are interested in being able to identify persons who have chronic neck pain in a more systematic way so that they can begin to document some of the impairments associated with chronic neck pain and perhaps come up with a systematic intervention. If you had a laboratory, quantitative sensory testing is incredible and one can look at cold and pressure sensitivity using fancy gadgets that cost $50,000 U.S. However, the equipment, as I just said, is costly and is often unavailable to the primary care clinicians. So the authors were interested in identifying clinical measures that can be used. And so what they suggested was a manual application of ice for five seconds and then have the patient rate the pain that is perceived, and they also pushed, use pressure, and ask the patients to rate the pain. So I'm going to read a little bit more to you to tell you exactly how this was done. The patients were asked to rate pain intensity using an 11-point NRS, numerical rating scale, 0 to 10, and that's what they were asked to do. There was an ice-cold test. There was a pressure test and then there was also the laboratory testing. In addition to just testing at the neck, the team also assessed several other sites. They looked at the upper trapezius, the capitate bones in both wrists, and the tibialis anterior. So again, the concept, I think, 
those of you who treat in this area understand, the question is, is there lower sensitivity or people more sensitive to cold or pressure just in the cervical region? Or is it also in the other points that were tested suggesting sort of a systemic problem rather than a localized musculoskeletal problem? The bottom line is that the ice itself, looking at ice cold, reporting how cold it is, and ice pain, turned out to be pretty valid compared to the laboratory testing. The pressure sensitivity of pushing wasn't as valid, and they suggest additional work is necessary to be done. So the conclusion of the authors is that they really believe that clinicians might be able to use five seconds of ice to examine different points in the body to look at the person's sensitivity to cold. And it might help identify whether it's a systemic or a local problem. So this is a sort of a cheap quantitative measure to substitute for the elegant laboratory tests. So thank you very much for the study. The next paper is entitled Characteristics of Handwriting of People with Cerebellar Ataxia, Three-Dimensional Movement Analysis of the Pen Tip, Finger, and Wrist. The authors are Yuki Fujisawa and Yaksutomo Okajima. They come from the Department of Physical Therapy of Rehabilitation Medicine at Kyorin University in Tokyo, Japan. This is a small study involving 11 people who had cerebellar ataxia and 17 persons served as controls. The authors used an assessment tool that I was not aware of called the Scale for the Assessment and Rating of Ataxia, and that assessment tool was used to grade the severity of ataxia. They also used a three-dimensional analysis using electromagnetic motion tracker of the hand during handwriting. The authors were really interested in describing the kinematics of sort of the tip of the pen and its relationship to the wrist. They were interested in looking at the quality of the ataxia rather than just having a scale that rates its severity. The pictures are lovely. They're hand-drawn and show you the variables and also show you the difference between persons with and without ataxia in a very clear way. The authors felt that they could use ataxic handwriting to more clearly describe the deficits that are associated with cerebellar ataxia. So for me, this is another example of a paper that's really carefully trying to look at the details. So rather than saying that a person has cerebellar ataxia, really be able to describe the specific deficits associated with that diagnosis. Now, there's one sort of piece that I have to come away with. I told you they used a scale for assessment of rating of ataxia, but what they chose to do was just pull out three of the eight items on the test, and they were finger chase, finger to nose, and fast alternating movement hand tests. So what they thought they could do was characterize ataxia using just those three items. And basically what they concluded was that was not a sound thing to do. And that's another take-home message. Many of us have been told over and over again that you have to use the whole test. If the whole test, all the items are 
examined in determining the validity, the reliability, the responsiveness. And pulling out individual items basically undoes all of the psychometric properties of the test. These authors confirmed that quantitatively in their study. The next paper is entitled Pediatric Evaluation of Disability Inventory Computer Adaptive Test and the Alberta Infant Motor Scale. This is a validity and responsiveness study. The authors are Helen Dumas and colleagues from the Research Center for Children with Special Care Needs and the Physical Therapy Department at Franciscan Hospital for Children in Boston, Massachusetts. What I really love about this paper is its honesty. This, to me, is just a model paper for authors having a goal and not getting the results that they wanted and being really reflective in the discussion about what they need to do next. So now I've told you the bottom line, now I'll tell you what they did. They looked at 53 infants and young children who were less than 18 months of age who had been admitted to a pediatric post-acute care hospital and referred for physical therapy examination. Many of you who are certainly those of you who are in pediatrics know these two tests. The PDCAT has been validated for a population of youth with disabilities, but looking at this younger population hasn't occurred. And in this younger population, the Alberta Infant Motor Scale, or the AIMS, is viewed as one of the gold standards. And so the authors wanted to compare the validity of the two tests and also see whether it was responsive. When they looked at the validity, and they did a great description of why one could compare the PDCAT to the AIMS for validity, they found only a fair association. And by fair, I'm talking about a correlation of point. So you can see it didn't have fair as a good definition for the correlation. They did find that the PDCAT was responsive to change in motor skills. But they concluded that they really needed to do further item and standardization development on the PDCAT if it were to be used confidently to identify motor delay in children who are less than 18 months of age. So this is, you know, a study that basically said, yeah, it's valid, but there's some problems with this test, and we really need to go back to the drawing board and refine it before we recommend its use with children who are less than 18 months of age. So I really thank the authors for such an honest discussion of their results. The next paper is entitled Virtual Sensory Motor Balance Training for Children with Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorders, a Feasibility Study. The authors are Sarah Westcott-McCoy and her colleagues from the Department of Rehab Medicine at the University of Washington in Seattle and Boston Dynamics in Waltham, Massachusetts. I think it certainly has been in the literature enough, the effect of alcohol on the fetus. And so fetal alcohol spectrum disorders occur because of moderate to heavy prenatal alcohol exposure. And these children have a three-fold risk for gross motor impairments. And the motor impairments are associated with balanced postural control. So the children have poor balance during stationary standing and increased postural sway after they've been pushed, for example, when they're trying to stand. One of the hypotheses at the moment is that the children may have diminished sensory control 
And because they have diminished sensory control, it may account for their poor balance ability. So the authors developed a virtual reality intervention. It's titled The Sensory Motor Training to Affect Balance, Engagement, and Learning, or STABLE, the STABLE system. And they really were interested in this study and looking at the feasibility of using this tool to provide an intervention. So it's a very small sample and there was only one exposure. There were 11 children who were ranged from 8 to 16 years, and they were only exposed to intervention for 30 minutes. And so the authors then examined to see whether there was any change. The authors concluded that basically all children were able to engage in this virtual reality game, and they tolerated it well, and that the immediate effects were minimal, so they thought that additional exposure to the intervention was probably necessary. So I think this is a wonderful example of what a feasibility study is, and I encourage you to read it and to stay tuned to find out if STABLE is introduced into the physical therapist clinics. The final paper is entitled Addressing Neuroplastic Changes in Distributed Areas of the Nervous System Associated with Chronic Musculoskeletal Disorders. The authors are Renee Pelletier and colleagues, I apologize, I'm going to read this in English, who come from the Readaptation Sciences and the School of Readaptation at the University of Montreal in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and the Center for Interdisciplinary Research and Rehabilitation of Greater Montreal and Montreal. You can't end this wonderful issue with anything better than this perspective for me. Many of you know that I love the nervous system. I've talked about plasticity of the nervous system for so many years. And I've also really, really begged us to get out of our silos of thinking that the nervous system is important to persons with neurologic diseases and it's only the musculoskeletal system that's important for persons with orthopedic conditions. These authors say it so much better than I've ever said it. So please, 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 everyone should read this article regardless of what your area of specialization is. They've done such a wonderful job talking about the relationship between changes peripherally in the musculoskeletal system and how they relate to the central nervous system. They talk about, since this is the case, the value of using cognitive training, as we just talked about in earlier articles on chronic low back pain. They also talk about the use of transcranial direct current stimulation, and repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation. So they take sort of the areas that have evolved and are still evolving in neuroscience, and rather than applying them to what we would expect, like persons with traumatic brain injury, multiple sclerosis, etc., they're talking about looking at applying these for chronic musculoskeletal disorders. This is a great paper. So we end this November issue with my thanks again to the authors for selecting our journal and giving us such interesting papers. But December will be just as good, if not better, because in December we will begin to see the special issue on health services research. Janet Freeberger and Linda Resnick have done a spectacular job pulling together remarkable articles, and I can't wait you get a chance to look at those articles. 
so enjoy November. For those of you who get to celebrate Thanksgiving, have a great Thanksgiving. If not, enjoy the fall or the spring. See you in December. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for Dr. Craig, email ptj at apta.org. And be sure to include Craigcast in the subject line. This has been a production of APTA.